It was the worst thing that uh, could ever happen to me, meaning I, I would have much rather died. I had to approach it. So what we did is we put, you know, a picture of him in front of that with flowers and a candle. And then we took a journal and we would, she would journal and I would journal memories of him because we wanted to bring those up and feel him and keep him with us. And I don't mind the experience of the pain. I mean, this is the key thing. It's pain, okay, so what? Don't worry about that. What's the experience like? So it's very bittersweet. It's bitter, obviously, because of the painful elements of missing and all that, but it's sweet because, again, it's my way of keeping him with me. And so it becomes sweeter and less bitter over a period of time. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is the iconic billionaire investor and hedge fund manager, Ray Dalio. And if you don't know who Ray Dalio is, take a minute to look him up. He's the founder and chief investment officer at Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund that started after Ray took a bet on himself and formed his company in his two-bedroom New York City apartment. Since then, Bridgewater has been a part of massive deal flow and has managed the portfolios of major Fortune 500 companies, pension funds, and other government holdings. Bridgewater's success has made Ray a multi-billionaire, and he is by far one of the most innovative and inventive financial minds that we have today. As someone who worked on Wall Street before starting The Brew, I always had Ray Dalio's book, Principles, on my shelf. And I know a lot of my friends on Wall Street really looked up to the way that Ray built his business. But outside of Ray's incredible successes, I was really interested in speaking with him about his process and the steps that he took to elevate himself and also how the death of his son shaped his outlook on life. My full conversation with Ray Dalio after the break. Ray Dalio, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Oh. Thank you for having me here. I'm really excited to have this conversation for a number of reasons. But the first is that I've had two careers since graduating from Michigan. I went to work at Morgan Stanley trading mortgages for a year before quitting my job and going full-time on Morning Brew. And what I found is a lot of the folks that I consumed their content to be a better trader and a better thinker around markets. I found that what they created for me was really valuable when I worked on Wall Street. But then when I went to work at Morning Brew, it wasn't as applicable. And I think what's been really special is I would actually argue your content for me has been as valuable today for me running a media business as it was for when I was thinking about markets on a daily basis trading. And I think it speaks to your ability to not only execute at the deepest level, but also to abstract these amazing lessons that are applicable to really everyone. And so I'm really appreciative for that. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. There are principles of life that apply more broadly than just the career. Absolutely. So with that, you know, everyone focuses on kind of the results of your career. They focus on the results of your success as an investor, building the largest hedge fund in the world, in Bridgewater, having a net worth that's tens of billions of dollars. But for me, and I think for you, far more interesting is the process that got you there and the principles that you developed along the way to achieve that success. And so I want to start with 
the very beginning of the process, which is your upbringing. And I want you to walk me through what childhood was like for a little Ray Dalio. Well, I was blessed, you know, the basics. I had two parents who cared about me, loved me and raised me. What was I like? I was fun loving, didn't like school, hated high school, was a lousy student, but fell in love with the markets when I was 12. I caddied, I did odd jobs. Where did you caddy? At a place called the Lynx Golf Club, which was in Long Island, New York. And I caddied there, and at the time, the stock market was hot and everybody was talking about the stock market. So I, every time I'd get 50 bucks, I would put it in the markets. But at the first stock I bought, was the only company that I ever heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share, Northeast Airlines. And the company was about to go broke. I didn't know that. Um, But it tripled because some other company acquired it. And I thought this game is easy. And I got hooked at 12. And that's how I got started in the game. What was it about the game that interested you? Because everything that I've heard you talk publicly, for you, money was a lever for getting control of your time, which was the best access to freedom. But as a 12-year-old, my guess is you didn't necessarily have the mental maturity to think of it in that way. So what was attractive to that game for you? Well, there was an element with the game of it, you know, figuring it out which was the good one, which was the bad one. I'd go to the back of the Wall Street Journal. There were hundreds of companies that listed on the back and their prices would change every day. And I figured I just needed to find one or two that would go up and how difficult can that be? I remember ordering from Forbes at the time. They had 500 companies and it said, check off which ones you'd like the annual reports of. So I checked off all of them. And the mailman would bring me these piles of annual reports. So I started to build a library and I started to read about these companies and there were puzzles and I Clearly you just had an incredible level of intellectual curiosity and intellectual independence. And I think I remember you saying one of the reasons you didn't necessarily love school was because you were taught to memorize things and you didn't really quite get what you learning in school was actually going to help you with in real life. I think you made this point that children are by nature curious. I feel like so many of the things we try to do in our adult life is to go back to our child-like curiosity. It's almost in some ways we try to unlearn the assumptions we make as adults that as children, everything is new. There are no assumptions. You know, I'm in a position over 47 years of hiring people and the people who followed the traditional education system in which they are by and large useless. So the difference between success in school and success in life is quite startling. I think the education system teaches you sort of bad things and even selects bad things. I think they're terrible about learning because they're very overemphasized knowing. In other words, what do you know? Where in reality, life is a learning process from making mistakes. It's your curiosity, you move along, then you try to figure it out. So I learned in later life, One of my favorite principles, which is pain plus reflection equals progress. And they don't tell you that. The pride in knowing stands in the way of learning, I think. When Ray talks about this, I can't help but feel that some of his judgment of the education system comes from a place of not feeling like his outside of the box thinking was accepted. 
Ray's early life was an interesting one. He's the son of a jazz musician, and part of the reason why Ray worked a bunch of odd jobs, as he calls it, is because his family didn't have enough money to afford him his well-being and what he aspired to get into, which ultimately turned into him playing with the stock market. You had experiences that led to this principle of pain plus reflection equals progress. Talk about what it was like in the early days of building Bridgewater, where you basically had to serve as two people, as an investor, as well as an entrepreneur, and talk about kind of the most painful experience you had in those early days that led to this principle and also just humility becoming a very important ethos to your whole career. So I started Bridgewater in 1975, being fired from my other job because I was kind of rebellious. I wanted to have a what I now call meaningful work and meaningful relationships with people I work with. But the really big learning experience came in 1980, 81 and 82. I calculated that American banks had lent much more money to foreign countries that they were going to be paying back because at that time money was very tight and interest rates hit the highest level since Jesus Christ. So for that crunch, I figured that they wouldn't be able to pay back. And I said, we're going to have a big debt crisis. And I couldn't have been more wrong. August 1982 was the exact bottom of the stock market. Federal Reserve eased a lot of money and the stock market went up. And I lost money for me and I lost money for my clients. And I was very publicly wrong. I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to help to pay for my family bills. So it was a painful experience, but naturally, it taught me the humility that I needed to balance my audacity because how do I know I'm right? That's the question I think almost everybody should ask. And I learned how to deal with that. I wanted all the upside, but I couldn't take that downside. I wanna jump in again here to say that this feeling that Ray has is all too common, as much as imposter syndrome is common. In the beginning of Bridgewater, leading up to this very public mistake, Ray's confidence was sky high, too high in fact, and this is something that I see in a lot of founders. Many times while building a business, we have horse blinders on and we don't listen to the people around us nearly enough, but it's important to understand that a company isn't any one person, it's a community of people working together with a common goal. I learned how to see things through others' eyes that I might not be able to see. I learned radical open-mindedness, which means I wanted my ideas and my theories to be stress tested so that others challenge me because maybe I'm missing something. So that's what that's what that experience yeah. was like. You talk about it in such an eloquent way, but I can imagine going back for a second to in 1982 when you had made this call on what was going to happen to the markets as a result of countries defaulting on their debt and then being wrong about that call, how emotionally provoking that could be, right? And you talk about the, oh, you know, the two yeah. yous, the, the emotional you and the intellectual you. And it makes me also think about, you did a TED Talk a while ago. And in that TED Talk, you talked about a number of things, how you operated Bridgewater, but you also, if I remember correctly, showed a video of you earlier in your career, but your response after was, what an arrogant guy talking about your younger self. To me, it's an incredible transition you made to have kind of this level of self-awareness and the shedding of the ego that allowed you to do all these things moving forward. And I think it's talked about in such a like simple way, but it had to be a hard transition for you from where you were. 
Of course, of course. So another thing that helped me was meditation. I learned transcendental meditation in 1969. And what prompted you to start that? The Beatles went to India and they came back and they talked it up and I figured I'd go check it out. And it's a simple exercise that has the power of giving you an equanimity. In other words, a calm ability to face your challenges and think well about them and also a creativity. So when I talk about the two yous, what I mean is there's an intellectual you that you're conscious of and you say, I think this and I think that and so on. And then there's a subliminal you, meaning below the limbic system, so it does, you're not conscious of it. And that subliminal you, which is emotional, has a bigger effect on you. And those two things are driving you. You may not know what your underlying motivations are. And so meditation has the effect of bringing you from your conscious to your subconscious and kind of helping to align them. Ray credits the inward journey of transcendental meditation with many of his financial inventions and insights. This got me curious about how this perspective affected Ray's outlook as an investor, his outlook on money, and also how it helped him when he lost his son in a tragic car accident. More on all of that with Ray Dalio after a quick break. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. And we're back to my conversation with billionaire investor Ray Dalio. Ray just spoke about how the peace of mind that came from meditation helped him majorly in his career. I wanted to know how this affected him when he thought about money as well. I want to talk about how much you thought about money when you were starting Bridgewater. And where it can become difficult is when there becomes an obsession with money and the relationship with money and status. Because when it relates to it being a status game, ultimately you can end up making choices that are the choices really of others that you make for yourself. And I guess one thing that I'm interested in is for people who are listening to this and maybe they weren't blessed in the way that you were with realizing very early on the game that you wanted to play and loving that game. For people who are still trying to figure out what game is it that they want to play, if people don't have clarity around that and they're trying to distinguish, am I playing a game that I want to play or am I playing a game that others want me to play? Well, I have a principle which is make your work and your passion the same thing and don't forget about the muddy part. You should know, is this something that you get up in the day and that you're excited about? Again, meaningful work and meaningful relationships. I'm excited about it and I'm doing it with people I want to be around. And by the way, I'm not saying that my own preference for money and what it means to me may be different from somebody else's and that's okay. Like, let's say somebody really loves beautiful cars or beautiful houses or whatever it is or likes other things that are expensive that's up to them that's fine i'm not saying that that shouldn't exist okay nothing am i saying but know yourself 
and know what does matter to you, right? And then do realize, of course, if you are seeking it for the ego reasons, it's kind of really dumb because, first of all, nobody's going to remember you in history. I mean, you know, you're, you're going to come and you're going to go. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then what what is it? You're trying to please other people? I mean, you don't want to live your life that yeah. way. Now, I want to talk about the stages of your life and how you think about the stages of your life. Because from my understanding, the stage you're in right now is all centered on helping others be successful, whereas the previous stage was focused on you finding success yourself. Just drill into how you think about these stages of life and how you kind of knew to yourself that you were ready to graduate to the next stage. Yeah, I think that there are three broad phases in life. The first is you're learning and you're dependent on others, typically your parents. You're not on your own. Second phase is you're on your own. And Rather than even following the instructions, you're on your own. The world is wide open. It's got many choices. And you're trying to be successful. And increasingly, others become dependent on you, whether at work or with the family and so on. And you wrestle with different things like work-life balance and so on. And then you get to a phase where you instinctually or physiologically or psychologically you want others to be successful. I mean, in other words, it's like I played the game. I've, I've done that. And that you start to get pleasure out of others being successful. And also you're at an age where, hey, what are you supposed to do and what's going to happen to you? So you're evolving because you're going to disappear. Joseph Campbell wrote, there's a book called Hero of a Thousand Faces. And they described that, okay, now you go to the phase where you're free to live and free to die. No obligations. You enjoy other things and so on. And that's a natural transition. Yeah, I mean, it's such a beautiful thing. And I think at the end of the day, what it feels like to me is, you know, we live on this spectrum when we do any sort of work or spend our time. One side of the spectrum is doing things 100% of the time for, it's called external validation, what others want you to do or expect you to do or what you think others want you or expect you to do. And on the other side is 100% internally driven. The things that, to your point before, you wake up in the morning excited to play whatever the game is, that is your game that you're excited to play. And I think in a lot of ways, what it just sounds like is you've been in this really great place for a long time now. And as you moved into another stage, you're just doing the things that light you up. And it's a really special thing to see. I want to talk about one last topic before we let you go. And that is in late 2020, you lost your son, Devin suddenly to a car accident. He was 42 years old, I believe. And I can't even imagine what that experience was like. The only imagination I have is the LinkedIn post you wrote following that experience. I believe it was 13 days after. I want you to just talk about what this challenge was like for you and how you processed and how you mourned. Because we've talked about professional challenge in your experience in 1982. But I think it's equally as valuable for you to talk about personal challenge and what that has done to you and for you. Yeah, it's it was the worst thing that uh, could ever happen to me, meaning I, I would have much rather died. I would have given up everything I had um, for that not to happen. The worst thing that I had. And so I had to approach it with my family. I'm very lucky to have a very close family. Meditation helped me a lot. It's like 
the serenity prayer. God give me the serenity to accept that which I can't control and give me the power to control that which I can and give me the wisdom to tell the difference. That's an intellectualization of something when I'm going through it. And I wanted to keep him with my wife and I have been married now for 44 years and we have tea each morning. We sit down and we have a cup of tea. And so what we did is we put you know, a picture of him in front of that with flowers and a candle. And then we took a journal and we would, she would journal and I would journal memories of him because we wanted to bring those up and feel him and keep him with us. And also then have the journal for his daughter. He had a three-year-old daughter. And when she grows up, we wanted her to have those memories. And I think of him every day, you know, he's around me and I almost um, can talk with him practically. I will, <laughs> sometimes I will even say to the picture something along those lines. And I don't mind the experience of the pain. I mean, this is the key thing. It's pain, okay, so what? Don't worry about that. What's the experience like? So it's very bittersweet. It's bitter, obviously, because of the painful elements of missing and all that, but it's sweet because, again, it's my way of keeping him with me. And so it becomes sweeter and less bitter over a period of time, and I write it. I find writing helps me think. But what it does, I think, is it gives you reflections, gives me reflections. And those reflections helped a lot. First of all, it reminds me of reality and putting the, everything in perspective. Okay, let me go hug the people that I love and let me make sure I'm spending the time with them. So it gave me gifts too. And so now that's how it goes for me. Also occurred to me at the time is everybody that you love is either gonna die before you and you're gonna have it or you're gonna die first. I don't know which, <laughs> both of them will count a bit. And so I felt compelled as I was going through that to again, share my reflections. If anybody cares to have them and see them, they're on LinkedIn. Yeah, there's so much that comes up for me first. I mean, it's such a beautiful exercise that you and your wife did with journaling at the table while having tea because, you know, something I, I've realized for myself in, in my own loss is that memory is such an imperfect thing. And the only way to try to continue to relive memories when you choose is by documenting and codifying them as specifically as possible to make recreating that story as viscerally as possible. And so it's such a powerful exercise that you guys do. And then also, you know, it's such a different application. And it's in some ways tough to think about it in this way. But going back to what you said at the top of the episode about pain plus reflection equals progress, you talking about the process you went through in grieving and in mourning your son. I mean, it's that formula to a T. Somehow in an incredibly horrible trauma, you both felt the pain. You didn't discount the pain, but then you push through the pain to think about what are things that can come from this pain. It's such a beautiful thing to find lessons, even in what is one of the worst traumas, which is losing a child. Yeah, the pain plus reflection equals progress. Well, Ray, I really appreciate your time and I appreciate you being so open about the experience because not only not easy to do, but also I think it, it is incredibly helpful to so many people because unfortunately, but realistically to your point, everyone's time on this planet ends at some point. So to understand how to navigate it in a way that pushes us forward is super powerful. 
Well, thank you for letting me share it. Thank you, Alex. To call Ray an icon may be an understatement. He is the kind of person that people look up to no matter what business you're in because of the way that he carries himself and the moral framework he operates in is truly admirable. Without mentioning it himself, I get the idea that Ray is an incredibly conscious investor and an individual who's focused on bettering the world for the people around him. For the longest time, Ray's principles have stuck with me and now this conversation has too. I hope there were some real takeaways for you as well. Be sure to check out Ray's Twitter or grab his book to read more about how Ray Dalio leads a balanced life. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our senior producer is Vishnu Vallabhaneni and Michaela Heck is our producer. Brian Henry is our executive producer and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Jeff Morrow. Emily Milliron is our video producer and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler and Jeff Morrow. Now, Imposters listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked where you want the show to get better. Our goal is simple. We want to make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex at and I'll get back to you as soon as possible.